0: we say Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. We have now hit episode 80, and in this episode, I'm going to start wrapping up the series on Genesis 1. If you enjoy this content, please consider partnering with us by becoming a sponsor via the Become a Sponsor link in the blog or by supporting us on Patreon. If you're not able to support us financially but would still like to help out the show, I'd ask that you would head on over to iTunes and give us a star rating and a review. These help the Freed Thinker podcast to have a better search result status when people look for podcasts and content uh, of the kind of thing that we cover here. So that would be really, really helpful, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Also, don't forget to pick up your tickets for the first annual Mentionables conference coming up this May in Greensboro, North Carolina. In that conference, I will debate Ben Watkins from Real Atheology, on the God of the Bible and suffering. So it should be a really awesome event, really good time. Uh, I'd love to meet a lot of you there, and tickets are on sale. I'll put the link up in the show notes. Well, with that, let's jump right into this final episode on Genesis 1 and the Literary Framework Model. Enjoy the show. (laughs) series i had several people ask specifically about the framework model or the literary framework interpretation that i had partially defined and defended in the first 3 episodes but they wanted just a bit more well i think that i've already explained what the literary framework model is and specifically how it functioned in a polemical framework i wanted to now shift my focus to some of the criticisms that it's just old earth creationism in disguise, or that it's somehow trying to reject the clear teaching of the Bible so that we can more comfortably hold on to old earth creationist views. Now, anyone who knows me or knows most of the people who hold to the, the literary framework model anyways, will know that this is just complete nonsense. So in this episode, I'm gonna show how and why many of the, those of us who hold to the literary framework model do so because of what we observe or do not observe in the text of Genesis 1. That is, we hold to literary framework precisely because we want to be faithful to the text. So first, let's talk about some of the causes for looking for alternative readings for Genesis 1. We started to cover some of these a little bit in the last episode, and there will be a little bit of overlap, but I wanted to cover them all here uh, because... Part of what will lead uh, many people to the literary framework is precisely the fact that there are problems, insurmountable problems, with the other views of Genesis 1. So, the first one is that there are problematic issues with a young earth creationist or a literary 24-hour day, solar day view. The first problem, problem number one, is that there's light before the luminaries. We read about doubt in day one. It says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Then we come to day four, starting in verse 14, and it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be for the lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Now, a statement of the problem could be that day one has the creation of light and the separation of the light from the darkness. That is, those are... Um, definite nouns. They're not just a light from a darkness. They are the light from the darkness. In day four, we see that the light is separated again from the darkness, and these are the same Hebrew terms in both days. These are definite articled nouns, meaning that they are a specific light and a specific darkness, and not just light and dark in some type of vague abstraction so if the light had been separated on day one why did it need to be separated again on day four i don't think we really have an answer for that now a common response from young earth creationism is the assumption that the objection is about the possibility of there being light before the luminaries full stop they'll often say something like well god could do it god could create A supernatural light uh, that came or that generates from nothing. He's just kind of emanating this light from nowhere, and it's in a state of constant creation ex nihilo. As an absolutely omnipotent being, God could absolutely do that. I have no problem with that. But that isn't the objection here. Although I do admit that this is a question that adds to the cumulative case against young earth creationists or a literalistic 24 hour day interpretation view since just because God could do it doesn't mean that that's the valid counter-explanation. For God could have also created, you know, a singular self-aware Boltzmann brain and we could all just be a part of his imagination of such a brain dreaming. Just because God could do that doesn't support that We should distort our interpretation in such an obviously ad hoc manner as to say that God did do that. But regardless of that, that is not the objection I'm presenting here. The objection here is that we have the separation of the light from the darkness two times in the span of about 16 verses. If God had already separated the light from the darkness what light and what darkness was left to separate in day 4 uh, did it fuse back together again even after god called it good did, did did the light does the is the light this kind of abstract platonic object that just exists apart from luminaries does it, you know, ha- have a, some type of magnetic effect back with the darkness after? I mean, you just get into those weird things. Why would God separate the light from the darkness on day one, call it good, then create the luminaries on day four to separate the, day, the, the light from the darkness again? So there's a problem there. The second problem is that there's days before the sun and the moon. There are solar days with morning and evening before the sun and the moon. Now, God says in day four that the sun and the moon were created for the purpose of marking out seasons, days, and years. In fact, in day one, he already demarcated the period of light as day and the period of darkness as night. And yet when we come to day four, God creates the sun and the moon specifically to mark out days and to govern the day from the night. Now, why would this be needed if it had already occurred in day one and God said that it was good? And how could this happen in day one if God already said expressly that this is exactly just what the sun and the moon were for? That was their function. That's what they did. They were to separate out the light from the darkness. They were to govern the day from the night. They were to mark out days. Now, some young Earth creationists will say things like, "Oh, well, you know, a, a solar day is just the Earth rotating 24 or you know, uh, you know uh, uh, 360 degrees on its axle, axis." But the problem is, is that there's morning and evening. There are demarcations of light and dark, of day and night, which God says that that's why He made the sun and the moon to mark out night from day so that is a a kind of a catch 22 of a problem for them this also leads to the next problem that is the goodness problem was the system of light and dark or day and night set up on day one actually good as God said it was or was it somehow not good or inefficient or problematic in some way If it was good on day one, then why did God need to scrap this, you know, supposedly supernatural light on day one, two, and three and start with something new on day four to serve the exact same function? In fact, to redo the exact same separation of day and night. Day one and day four perform the same activity. So, Why would God say that day one was good and then scratch it and do it all over again? If it wasn't good, then why say it was good at the end of day one? But if it was good, why do you need day four to redo it all again? It's another catch-22 problem. The fourth problem is that of what's called normal or general providence. Normal or general providence is just kind of the natural means that God uses to govern uh, and to run the solar system. So uh, gravity is part of natural uh, providence. The hydronic cycle is part of natural providence and so on. Genesis 2, 4 through 6 says, This is an account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So you have this problem in Genesis 2.5. It says that there's no no shrub, there's no plants, there's nothing out in the field because it had not yet rained. God shows that he used normal providence and he didn't bring about plants until it had rained. He didn't create them spontaneously through some type of divine fiat. In fact, while God, while God declares uh, that there be plants and there are plants, when we zoom in and we see in Genesis 2, we see that the means by which God does this is through normal providence. Now, why did he choose normal or general providence for the plants, but was content with special providence before in direct acts of creation? If God had directly caused plants to grow, as depicted in day three, then how could God have also waited to plant them until it had rained and until he had created man to tend them, as we see in Genesis 2-5? Could plants really not live for three days without rain and without a man to tend them? I mean, that's that's a bizarre position to have to take. Now, some are going to try to get out of this by saying that 2-5 that refers only to cultivated plants. Uh, but that's not... That's not really accurate to text what the text says. Notice that God has not caused any shrub or plant in the earth. And it's only after this that God plants a garden. Well, a garden just is the cultivated plant. So God plants a garden and then places Adam in the garden in which God then causes every tree that's good for food. So we see that there are no plants in the field and there are no plants in the garden because it had not yet rained. And then God places man in the garden to tend and to keep. Only then does God create the cultivated plants. Again, see the prior episode on the garden as a garden temple in line with the temple motifs of the ancient Near East, and you'll see a better explanation of this. But the problem here is a a sharp one we see that when, when we're given an example of how exactly God does create, we see that he He uses general providence. So why is it when we're reading Genesis 1 and we're, and we're at this kind of backed out angle looking at creation that we assume that he doesn't use normal providence? The problem sharpens when we ask if we should allow the young earth creationists to posit an unknown undescribed non-revealed supernatural light to explain away the contradiction created by their young earth creationist literalistic view when Moses himself presents a purely natural explanation for the apparent problem of the creation of plants before man in day three and yet contemporaneous with man in Genesis 2. Moses did not see fit to wave the magic wand of an act of unrevealed special creation over the problem to make it go away. So why should the young earth creationists be at liberty to do so? Problem five is the problem of apparent age. Now, this is a somewhat strange objection, and I admit that, but it's often misunderstood. If young earth creationism is true— then it means that the earth, the moon, and the entire solar system bear marks of billions of years of real history and yet never experience that history. Now, the common young earth creationist response is that God also created Adam, quote-unquote, mature. That is, he created him fully formed. The problem here is that Adam's maturity is not analogous to what we're talking about in the problem. Right? We're, not, we're not saying that the problem is that God created a, a fully mature galaxy with, you know, light already in full motion or, or whatever we'd like to think of that. A better analogy would be that of belly buttons and scars. So we know that belly buttons form from the place of the umbilical cord during fetal development. So if Adam never had fetal development, would he have a belly button? I don't know. Maybe if God wanted Adam to have the same morphology as his children so as to not, you know, seem out of place, maybe, but I I doubt it. But now imagine that Adam had a giant scar across his back, the kind that one would get from a bear attack, and yet Adam never actually fought with a bear. Would the marker of a historical event that never really happened be an ethical problem for god that's not just creating adam fully mature that's creating adam with marks of a history that he never actually had now when we think of the face of the moon and the earth for example they're covered with craters and and, and there's lots of other examples that we give but I'll focus on craters and some of these craters would have been for meteors that would have wiped out the majority of life on Earth, especially fragile mammalian life, for tens of thousands of years had they actually struck the Earth during the time of mammals. Well, what would that mean? If a meteor the size of the one that left the Vredefort Crater, which is about, has a radius of about 118 miles or 190 kilometers, it would have obliterated mammalian life on Earth for tens of thousands of years. And yet, if the young Earth creationist is right, humanity has not only been alive for 10,000 years or less, but has been steadily growing, minus the flood, of course. So what do we do on young Earth creationist, creationism with markers of historical events that never actually happened? Does that pose an ethical problem for a view of the God of truth on young earth creationism? I'm not going to say yes or no, but it definitely is a challenge. Problem six is the appearance of highly stylized patterns. This one's going to be brief, but when we read Genesis 1, we see the appearance of a heavily stylized literary structure. It uses an enormous amount of literary devices common to non-literal genres such as uh, myth, poetry, or elevated non-literal prose in the Hebrew scriptures and in other ancient Near Eastern writings. These include things like groups of words and sets of tens or sevens or chiasm, chiasms. The chiasic structures are these interesting little... Um, uh, flow charts almost within, within a passage where it goes from a concept A to a concept B to a similar concept B back to a concept A. They can get more complicated than that, but that's a, that's a really basic structure. There's a ton of repetition and so on and so forth. These are all marks of major literary devices, if not all-out poetry in Hebrew, and are found littered throughout Genesis 1. The only thing that keeps Genesis one from being clearly poetic is the lack of doublets or couplets, couplets which are a hallmark of Hebrew poetry. So, if you read through Psalms or the Proverbs, where it says, uh, you know, I, I, I say this and you say this, right? Um, where it has all these little, uh, these all these little couplets of uh, of phrases as it goes throughout. That that is that is one of if not the identifying mark of Hebrew poetry. So what happens when you have scholars that go back to Genesis 1, they say, well, we're missing couplets, so it's not actually Hebrew poetry. But then they're not quite comfortable saying, well, it's just regular narrative. That's why when you read through Genesis 1, you see kind of that partially indented scansion all the way down the entire chapter. It's not quite poetry. It's not quite Prose, uh, but it's it's something in and of itself precisely because of the enormous amount of literary devices that it uses and these typify non-literal prose in Hebrew literature. That's gonna be a problem for those who are gonna to wanna to say uh, based on the, the, the grammar and the actual style of Genesis one that it's some type of literal historical narrative. We saw that last time in dealing with the Vav consecutive uh, arguments. Problem seven now arises from old earth creationist views. And that is that the Old Earth creationists tend to not really engage with the text, and when they do, they do so in an ad hoc manner. Now, I've spent most of my time dealing with Young Earth creationists uh, in these discussions, and that's basically for one main reason. That's just that the Old Earth creationists typically don't deal directly with the text. Uh, What we find are just ad hoc readings of the text meant to fit their view of the age of the cosmos. Now, I know some of my older creationist friends are going to be jumping up and down and howling that that's not true. But every time I've asked for a good textual argument for old earth creationism, it never really comes. And it's a really quick hop, skip and a jump over to Hugh Ross and the scientific arguments for old earth. You don't really get that much engagement with the text beyond kind of not the best handling of the word yom. Now, this is how you get into views like gap theory that posits an undefined amount of time between verses one and verses two, right? They claim that it's a big enough gap to drive billions of years worth of trucks through. The problem here is that, well, if I'm being honest, We just never really would allow that manner of hermeneutic on any other issue in any other passage. Just imagine what would happen if at any point we could insert an indefinite period of time. I mean, the the, the, the exegetical and hermeneutical problems would be unending. In fact, you could exponentially grow your cosmology because the days of Genesis 1, while sequential, are not actually said to immediately precede one another. So why stop at Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? Why not insert a billion years between day one and day two? and eh, just pepper in three billion years between day four and day five. Would we allow that with the Gospels? Would we put in, you know, an extra ten years between certain events? no it's just that, that that's that's not that's not the type of hermeneutics that we typically allow or really ever allow anywhere else within the scriptures problem number eight is the problem of what's called concordism um, I, I discussed this a little bit in the paper uh, but one of the main problems in dealing with Genesis 1 is that of the imposition of modern scientific and naturalistic understandings of science and the cosmos onto the ancient Near Eastern text that was written within a worldview which has at its core a view known as functional ontology. That is, that things exist or begin to exist when they serve or start to serve a function. So they may only consider a certain rock as existing when they can ascribe a function to it, say, propping open a door or directing the flow of a river. Yet what young Earth creationists and old Earth creationists alike both do is take their scientifically based views of the age of the Earth and some of the arguments for them and then read that back into the text this is a practice that is called concordism, as I've said, that the biblical text and the authors were actually attempting to write naturalistic. And by the way, when I say naturalistic, I don't mean that in kind of the atheistic worldview sense. I mean naturalistic as in kind of a naturalized uh, view of the world. Um, They're trying to write this naturalistic or naturalized view of the world to account for the creation of the cosmos and that such an account is in concord with the findings of science or the findings that they find in science. Now I'm not going to really be able to develop this further here since I spent really three episodes dealing with this issue and, and other issues that surround it. So for those of you who want to go back and listen to the series, I, I recommend doing that. But for now, let me simply assume for the sake of argument that many will come to the text having read the work of scholars like John Walton or Bruce Waltke or many others and find such a concordous enterprise out of concord, ironically, with the ancient Near Eastern worldview and historical context. This is going to be enough to lead many to look for better interpretations that jive better with the ancient Near Eastern setting in which Moses was writing. Now, while, while here, I'm, I'm not going to defend that their reading of Genesis 1 is true, but merely that when someone says that those who reject young earth creationists are simply rejecting the Bible, or are denying perspicuity or inspiration, or just want to distort the text— nothing could be really further from the truth. As we've seen with these problems that, that I've shown, it's actually the study of the word and the belief that, ca- that they cannot err, and as such, any view that entails so many problems and possible contradictions and ad hoc, ad hoc hermuteics just surely can't be the best view is going to lead many people to look for well, other views they're going to look for alternative interpretations that better understand the text within its historical context and under the umbrella of authorial intent or the census literalis yet that also does not lead to so many inconsistencies at the same time which they observe in the other system now i could go into other problems but i've discussed them uh, in the last episode. For example, um, the problem of, uh, of translating yom uh, as a 24-hour day just because it's coupled with an ordinal or a cardinal number. We saw that, that argument fails. Um, or the, 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 the position that, the, you know, Genesis 1 has to be chronological if it's a, if it's a narrative, if we're, if we're even right calling it a narrative, that therefore it has to be chronological. And we looked at, you know, the Gospels are a great example. The Gospels are, are often not chronological. They are what's called synchronic. They are not diachronic. That is, they are, they are synchronic. They are without time. They're not diachronic. That is, they're not through time. Now, does the fact that they that the gospels are synchronic, does that mean that we just scrap them and consider them non-history because they don't present the content in a modern historicist manner or order? I mean, that would just be that would just be absurd. We we should not feel constrained to view what is otherwise a historical picture through you know through a synchronic framework just because people are going to say, oh well, um, you know. A, 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 all, all historical narratives have to be chronological in order. It's just, it's just not how it works. Okay so that's some of the things that we see or don't see in the text that lead us to look for a better understanding of Genesis 1. Now I'm not going to rehash literary framework actually that much here because again I spent three episodes dealing with literary framework and polemics Previously, But let me just say um, that literary framework is basically the view that in Genesis 1, we see two triads. We see two groups of three um, within the day structure, right? We see uh, the days 1 through 3 are God creating or setting up the creature kingdoms. Um, and days 4, 5, and 6 are God creating or setting up or installing the creature kings, the, the sovereign or the authorities over those uh, creature kingdoms. So, for example, day one and day four, we have the light and the luminaries. Day two and day five, we have the creation of the sky and the sea, and then the creation of the sea and sky creatures. And then day three and day six, we have the creation of land and mammals, and the creation of man to rule over them. And then in day seven, uh, that's when we have the creator's king, resting from all of his works of creation so you have this nice little literary structure um, that organizes the entire um, the entire narrative and just because it does so with a framework or, or a thematic development around a calendar week uh, it doesn't necessitate that those that that calendar week is a chronological um, dis- depiction of what actually happened that can just function as a type of Uh, creation, uh, a creation paradigm. So uh, that's a basic structure of the literary framework view. Again, if you want more uh, detailed um, analysis of and defense of it, uh, listen to the previous three episodes uh, dealing with uh, the redemptive historical or the grammatical historical um, interpretation of Genesis 1. Now, there are a lot of benefits that come out of the literary framework. First, they don't—it doesn't suffer from the problems that we mentioned above, because it's synchronic. It doesn't really matter what the order that's presented, um, that they're presented in. It it solves problems like light before the luminaries because it's not actually saying day one uh, was three days before day four. Right. Day one and day four could have happened at the exact same time. They, they could have been contemporaneous where you have the luminaries and the light being created at the same time. You have the it's, it's just that the text is presenting it in a type of order where it's setting up. Here's all the here's all the kingdoms and then it's setting up this next order where here's all the kings. But in actual fact, the, the, you know, everything could have happened instantaneously. I mean, that was Augustine's view that everything happened, uh, all of creation, all, all six days happened in an instant. Um, so that's that, That's definitely a helpful feature of the literary framework um, that, that it doesn't entail pretty much every single one of the problems that we listed above. Another really uh, great feature is that it draws out major biblical themes. Actually, rather than saying draws out, I should say that it establishes um, a lot of the major biblical themes, right? Because this is, this is Genesis. This is the setting up. This is... <laughs> you know, the genesis of biblical themes. And so what we see here is the, the creation or the elevations of kingship, right. So you have the natural kings um, that are under the human kings and the human kings that are under the God under God the king. right. So you see this uh, this elevation of sovereignty um, happening throughout, uh, the entire creation account, where um, man is to exercise dominion over all of creation as the as the human king, uh, the vice region of God on earth, but he is still under the uh, the Creator's king, right? God, the King, the absolute sovereign. So the literary framework really helps to highlight um, this this type of thematic development. Now, don't get me wrong young earth creationists can also show that this theme is important to genesis one i mean i think everybody can affirm that kingship is important in genesis one what literary framework does is it shows that not only is that motif there but it's actually built into the structure of the presentation of the text itself it's not just um, a theological point that we can derive from the text it's actually a theological point that's interwoven into the text, right? Because we see it actually in the way that the days are set up in these two triads. You, you have the kingdoms being set up with the kings being installed afterwards. So it's not just this kind of vague uh, you know, uh, statement of the theme of kingship, uh, but it's interwoven into the structure itself. It makes it much more uh, rich in that manner. Another really important feature, uh, a, a biblical theme that that is established here, is Sabbath rest, uh, and we'll talk about why this is important specifically on literary framework. Again, because you could be a young Earth creationist and 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 a you know twenty four our literal solar day uh, advocate, and you could also uh, see Sabbath, You, I mean, you'll see Sabbath rest here um, just by reading your Bibles. So I'm not trying to say that this is exclusive to literary framework, but that it works it into the actual structure of the passage in the ways that the other views don't. So, uh, the Sabbath rest. Um, rest here is to enjoy the fruits of your rule. Um, it's It's not actually um in, in, in the divine sense, um, to, to gain um, back your energy and your strength, right? So Exodus 31:17 says, "It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Now, did God really get refreshed and rested? Did God, did God grow weary and, and tired and needed to rest? Well, no, God didn't grow weary, so he didn't need to get rest and refreshed. The answer to this is simple. It's analogical. God's rest is analogical to our rest. God's Sabbath is analogical to our Sabbath, right? It's not that His rest is, is just analogical. Uh, but that he also rested for a 24-hour day right that that's not actually what's being said here right so so it's not saying uh, only the rest portion of it is analogical but the, the the 24hour day that's literal that's a one-to-one correlation between the two well no i mean the, the the point is is that the entire sabbath rest structure and all is analogical to our rest it's set up as a paradigm Right? It's not meant to have a one-to-one correlation to our Sabbath rest. If you listen back to the last episode dealing with young earth creationist arguments and why I think they fail, uh, there's a section dealing with the seven-day paradigm as well as the open-ended seventh day. Now, we have good biblical reason to hold that the Sabbath rest of God was an everlasting Sabbath rest from creation and not a mere 24-hour day. And so we already, even on young earth creationist view, have to hold that at least one of the days in Genesis is analogical. That is, the seventh day is not a 24-hour earth day. In fact, it's still going on. And yet the Jews are supposed to rest on the seventh day as God did. So are they to work six days and then never work again to exactly pattern after God's creation week? No, again, the seventh day is clearly analogical. For more on this, again, listen back to last episode. Now, on the issue of Sabbath, having shown that the Sabbath rest of day seven is an ongoing event, Lee Irons, in his article on the literary framework of Genesis 1, writes, and this is a somewhat lengthy quote, but I think it's important. He writes, quote, if the seventh day of creation is not literal, a literal finite day measured by the sun-earth relationship, which defines our experience of time, it must belong to another temporal arena. The divine Sabbath rest must not be viewed from the earthly point of view, as if Genesis 2.2 were merely telling us that creative activity closed on earth, though that is certainly true. No, in Genesis 2-2, the veil is parted that we might behold a heavenly scene in the invisible world above, God's royal enthronement in the heavenly sanctuary. Thus, as Klein writes, it is heaven time, not earth time, not time measured by astronomical signs. And if the seventh day marks the passing of heaven time, then the whole picture of God's performing his creative work within a quote-unquote week must be heavenly and thus figurative as well. The two triad framework underscores the theological import of the days, marked off by the six-fold evening and morning refrain and brought to their climactic zenith in the seventh day of rest as forming a grand picture of God's creating with a sabbatical theology in view. The six days of creation have no independent earthly meaning apart from the concluding capstone of the seventh day, which completes the sabbatical picture and gives it its meaning. Thus, to arbitrarily sever the seventh day from the preceding six by asserting that the seventh day is heavenly while the six days are earthly is to sever the head from the body, leaving a truncated torso of six days emptied of eschatological significance the fourth commandment has been appealed to by critics of the literary framework interpretation as proof that the creation days are literal Exodus 2011 however this argument presses the relationship between god's work breast pattern and man's too far as if the two are identical rather than analogical The weekly cycle of work and rest appointed for man may still be modeled on God's work week of creation, even if the divine archetype is calibrated according to heaven time. The 24 hour creation uh, is another uh, major issue. I, I kind of went back and forth of whether I, I would say that this was a problem or was a benefit of the literary framework. Um, and, and I don't mean to be too cheeky, um, but if the 24-hour uh, literal, or you know, solar Earth Day is so important, so vital to the text that denying it is to deny the inspiration and the perspicuity and the inerrancy of Scripture then it's the most important theme that god never makes a point of again in the scriptures uh it, it's the most important uh, you know topic never again mentioned in the bible right so on one level that's a problem for young earth creationists on another level that's a help to the literary framework because we'd say well That's because the 24-hour, you know, days are not—those aren't the point of the passage. Right to take away the passage is not meant to be. How long did it take for God to create the heavens and the earth? The the point of the passage is for us to learn about God, our King, our Creator, and His sovereignty over all things, and our role in His creation. Those those themes of of kingdom and and rule and sovereignty and dominion and Sabbath and rest and so on, uh, and and, cre- and creator and creature distinctions and so on and so forth. Those are the themes that are constantly mentioned throughout the scriptures. Those are the important themes that we're meant to take away, not, you know, how long was day three. Another benefit is that that the literary framework explains the elevated prose and the literary features that we observe, but... It commits us to none of the inconsistencies mentioned above, as I've said already. One feature of the literary framework that it benefits from is a view of Genesis 1 as synchronic. We've already discussed this, that, that it views Genesis 1 as being without time, right? It's not presented necessarily in a chronological order. If something is diachronic, it means that it advances in a straight line chronologically. Diachronic literally means through time, whereas synchronic literally means without time. One feature that uses this is temporal recapitulation. Uh, Oswald T. Ayliss explains this feature of Hebrew narrative in his defense of the scriptures against the higher critics when he writes, The sequence in which events are recorded may not be strictly chronological. We often find in describing an event, the biblical writer first makes a brief and comprehensive statement and then follows it with more or less elaborate details. Irons again writes following up on this, Taking our cue from Alice, it is possible that when Moses comes to the fourth day of creation, he returns to events that had already been narrated on day one to describe them in greater detail. Day one narrates the creation of light and its basic physical result, the establishment of the day-night cycle. Day four returns to the same event to narrate the divine creation of the solar mechanism that stands behind the result of the day one as their physical cause. This interpretation would explain why the first three days seem so ordinary without so much as a hint that they existed apart from the sun, end quote. Now, another benefit of the literary framework is that it's science-neutral. Um, that is, it doesn't actually commit you to holding to young earth creationism or old earth creationism or theistic evolution or whatever view you think the science is best telling you. That's just not the point of Genesis 1. That's just not what it's teaching. We don't read prophecy with the newspaper in one hand, and we shouldn't read Genesis 1 with a cosmology or biology textbook in the other hand. It's just not a concern of ancient Near Eastern persons. Remember, John Walton pointed out the difference between the functional ontology of the ancient Near East and our material ontology of the modern world. So, it's it's just it's scientifically theory neutral because that's just not the point and It's not what's found in the passage, right? Even if even if young Earth creationism is scientifically true, right? why couldn't you then say that the point of genesis 1 is the literary framework and even if you wanted to hold to some type of literary view great instead of six days you actually have three days you 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 have you know day one four you have day two five and you have day three six right so instead of being and uh, six thousand and six days old it's six thousand years and three days old or whatever right it's just not hard to harmonize literary framework with whatever you think science is teaching. But it's just not the point of the text. Again, the same thing can happen with old earth creationism. You could still have day-age uh, issues happening with, with um, the passage itself. Uh, There's still no chronological markers within the text. There's still no time span markers within the text. And so if science is telling us that the Earth and the universe is old, then the Earth and the universe may be old. Now, I don't hold to young Earth or old Earth with regard to the text of Genesis 1 because I think both are just flawed readings of it. And I haven't done enough study of the relevant scientific findings to have very much of an opinion on it, uh, on whether the science tells us that if the, if the universe and the earth are young or old. So I, I'm really just largely agnostic about it. And that's not just a cheeky get out of free from admitting that I'm a old earth creationist. I really am just largely agnostic. I, I, I just really don't care because I don't think that that is the import of Genesis 1. Uh, now, I, I'm often, you know, falsely accused of being an old earth creationist you know, trying to undermine the Bible and its presentation of the young earth cosmogony or, or that I don't like what it's in the scripture and I'm just willing to do violence to the text to make it say something that I want it to say and so on and so forth. And again, anyone who knows the first thing about me knows that that's absurd, right? But for the sake of those who don't know me, let me just repeat it again. I am not a young earth creationist. I am not an old earth creationist. I am not a theistic evolutionist. I'm agnostic on the issue because I think those are all scientific questions entirely unrelated to the content, the message, the themes, the literary structure, and the overall intent of Genesis 1, and I haven't done enough study to actually have a view on that. I really am agnostic. I'm just going to attack what I think are bad arguments, and that just typically comes from, I'm sorry, young earth creationists and how they handle Genesis 1. I'm not saying all young earth creationists, there are many that I respect, but I'm saying that the argumentation tends to not be the best. Genesis 1 just comes from a non-scientific view we don't read many other Old Testament passages on creation in the overly literal way, but actually try to read them as symbolism. And, and really, it's largely because as astronomy has advanced, we found that God was able to give layered communication. What was incarnational to the worldview and the cosmological beliefs of the ancient Near East also can serve as, non-liter- as a non-literal presentation of the same data, and we're not duty-bound to hold that just because the biblical authors would have likely understood it within their worldview that we should not be able to understand it within ours. This is not to say that meaning is relative. Don't, Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But rather that God had more than one reading audience in mind and tailored his scriptures to be read, enjoyed, meditated on, and believed by a whole range of scientifically Literate or illiterate peoples. We can see a good example of this by looking at other passages in Job, for example. So Job 37 18 says, quote, Can you with him spread out the skies strong as a molten mirror? End quote. This is clearly a reference to the firmament. The firmament was believed to be a solid glass like dome that covered the face of the earth and held back the celestial waters above. Now, should we ignore modern cosmology and astronomy and earth science and go back to believing that the earth is covered in a solid glass dome? No, but that's how the ancient Near Eastern original audience would have understood it. That, that, that's likely how the author of Job understood it to mean. But we come along and we say, oh, well, we, you know, we know better with our astronomy. And, and so therefore, you know, we can, we can read and understand that that is uh, God being incarnational to their worldview, right? He, he's using their understanding of cosmology uh, and astronomy to, to present his message. He's not trying to correct, you know, their view of how the heavens go. He's trying to teach them how to go to heaven, as the old cliche goes. Another example is Job 38. Uh, Job 38, starting in verse 4, says, quote, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or where are its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? End quote. We read this passage in a non literal manner, whereas the original audience wouldn't have. It reflects a thoroughly ancient Near Eastern cosmogony, cosmology, pillars, foundations, the seas being kept in with gates, man kept from going beyond those gates, etc. Are are all images that are constantly used in the scriptures to refer to, uh, to to refer to the earth resting on a firm foundation. It pictures the earth resting. On a firm, it's immovable, it's stable, so on and so forth. Now, if Job were written today, it would likely read something like, where were you when the Big Bang happened? Where were you when gravity caught massive amounts of helium and compressed them into super hot balls where heavier elements were formed and pushed to their cores before exploding and sending out planet building materials into the cosmos? Did you speak to the billions of billions of galaxies into existence? Were you the one that set the charges of the electrons? And so on. Those would be the types of statements, if Job was being written today, that would be used. It's just using their cosmology to present the message. Another good example is geocentrism in the Bible. This is going to be kind of kicking a hornet's nest for so many people, but the Bible is entirely geocentric. Now, I should say that the Bible doesn't affirm geocentrism, right? But it's very, very clear that the biblical authors and the the biblical readers and the people held to geocentrism. And we know historically that pretty much everyone held to geocentrism uh, until uh, Copernicus, maybe a little bit right before that. But nobody held to heliocentrism uh, until about that time period, right? So we, so we, see, we see some examples, right? So we see uh, examples that the sun is the one that moves. So Hab- Habakkuk 3.11 says, The sun and moon stood still in their habitation at the light of thine arrows as they sped at the flash of thy glittering spear. Psalm 19.4-6 through six says, Yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends of them. Right, we're on the other side, we see that the earth is viewed as immo- immovable, right? It's on pillars, it has a cornerstone, it has a solid foundation. All right, so we saw the Job example. We can, re- we can look at First Chronicles 16.30, which says, "'Tremble before him all earth. Yea, the world stands firm, never to be moved.'" Psalm 93.1 says, "'The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is girded with strength. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved.'" Psalm ninety-six, ten says, "Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord, the world is established; it shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity." Now we come along and we say, "Okay, now you know the ancient Near Eastern reader might have understood that uh, you know as as actual uh, cosmology, but we we understand that they're writing phenomenologically." Right? They're li- They're writing from the point of view uh, of our place on Earth, looking out into the heavens. Right? And, and that's what we observe. if If we didn't have telescopes, if we didn't have a bunch of our equipment, we probably would still be geocentric because from our from our vantage point, it does look like the Earth is moving. So you know, the Bible is just written phenomenologically, from the viewpoint uh, of man's life on Earth. right? Well, that's fine. That's actually how the ancient Near Easterns got their cosmology. Their cosmology is phenomenological, but they believed that it was true, right? That's the view that they held, and that's the view that God chose to use to present his message, right? Again, he doesn't say that it's true. He doesn't. There's no verse that comes out and says, uh, you know, the earth is the earth is flat or the earth is covered with a dome or uh, you know something like that. It, it, it's it's being incarnational. It's using the thought forms and the worldview of the people to which uh, uh, to those who are receiving the revelation uh, and it's presenting the content to them in a meaningful and understandable way. Now. Even if those views are false, God's clearly just making theological points based on the original audience's cosmological views. He used their cosmology to make grander points, right? Again, the the cliche is apt that he's not trying to tell us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven, right? So uh, John John Walton uh, ha- asked this really quick, quick, great question. He says, you know, if we wanted God to give true scientific presentations on the world, whose science would he have used? Would he have used 10th century science? 21st century science? Why not 35th or 30 or or, or 47th century science? Why not use those more advanced sciences with better understandings of the world? I I mean, I guarantee that there's things that we don't understand and and that we're wrong about the nature uh, of the universe. And so if God wanted to come and actually present the nature of the universe and do so with a full, fully orbed, correct understanding of the universe, we would probably look at, uh, at our point of view right now and say, well, that's just batty. The communication wouldn't make sense. Right? The same thing happens. Imagine trying to explain or imagine trying to, to make these exact same points by appealing to the Big Bang, but to an ancient Near Eastern reader. Right? How would that work? That little thought experiment that I did about, you know, where were you when the Big Bang happened, when gravity caught massive amounts of helium and compressed them into super hot balls of gas? What would happen if that was told to Job? probably Job wouldn't be a well-known book because it'd be it would have just been incomprehensible to anybody living in that time period. Another really good benefit of the literary framework model is that it allows us to not fear the parallels to other ancient Near Eastern texts. This is a, really a large benefit of, of um, specifically my fusion of uh, Meredith Klein with the work of those like John Walton and John Currit, right? So it's not just the literary framework, but it's the polemical fusion into literary framework, right? So a lot of times when we talk about um, the, the, these quote unquote parallels to other ancient Near Eastern texts, Christians will go through these crazy mental gymnastics to try to explain away the apparent similarities between Genesis 1 and these ancient Near Eastern texts, which all predate Moses. So you have, for example, the Enuma Elish, uh, which is around 1900 to 1500. It's a Bronze Age, early second millennia text. You have the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a 2100 BCE text. You have the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Coffin Texts, which are mid to late third millennia. Uh, the, I mean, the, these go way, way, way back. They, they predate Moses somewhere between, you know, two, 200 to, two, what is that, 2,000 years. That is a, the, I mean, the, these texts clearly predate. And so the, there's these mental gymnastics that, that Christians go to, about you know well the the thread of the story is is held or or you know Moses was uh, Adam was given special revelation um, and and he you know he passed on um, the oral tradition of the creation all the way down to Moses and Moses had that um, so I mean you just you there's no evidence of it anywhere right. But, but the benefit of literary framework and of a polemical view is you don't need to do any of that, right? If, if you read people like John Walton, Walton's going to say that God used the worldview of the people and the writers to teach greater spiritual truths. John Currid is going to argue that God alludes to the motifs and idioms and terms uh, of the people surrounding the Israelites to polemicize them, to taunt them them to, to hijack and alter um, their views to bring them in line uh, with Yahweh. right. So of course they're going to have similarities. Of course they're going to borrow from them. Of course they're going to do that because they're polemicizing them. They're, use, they're using the worldview to teach greater spiritual truths. They're using these other texts, the motifs and the themes and the structures and the idioms from these other texts, To polemicize them and to show these other cultures and these other religious observers, you guys are wrong. You are serving the wrong God or gods. It is actually uh, Yahweh that is the one true creator God, right? it, it, It is Yahweh that created mankind in his image to be in fellowship in the Garden Temple. He's not there... You know, as, as as many of these these other um, these other narratives go, he, he's he's not creating humans to be menial labor to feed and to house them in the temples, right? He, Moses is polemicizing these other these other uh, groups that are surrounding them, and that's that's a, that's a wonderful thing. We don't have to go through these mental gymnastics to explain away the similarities between these these the, you know Genesis and the texts that predate it. Right, and and that's just that we don't we don't need to be afraid of those. Two. God God hit them on the head with their own theology. God was the ultimate presuppositionalist in that sense, and we see that that God does this in real life with the plagues, right? The, when when He's dealing with the plagues of Egypt, right? This this is a real life example. It's not just a literary polemic. It's a it's a real world polemic. Now, ultimately, Pharaoh was viewed as the deity that was supposed to ensure what's called ma'at. Ma'at is similar to the Hebrew concept of shalom. It's overall peace and well-being and stability. Uh, It is kind of this thriving feeling uh, among among the nation. And and Pharaoh was the deity uh, who was supposed to ensure the stability of ma'at um so that there would be future generations of Egyptians. And and what happens is that God starts to directly assault Pharaoh's claim to do so. God shows that he could destroy Ma'at with a single word. It started with the serpent staff conflict, right? This this is the conflict where Aaron throws down his staff and it turns into a snake, and the the you know the, the magicians in the court of Pharaoh throw it on their their, uh, their staffs and it turns into snake, the, you know, a bunch of cobras but, but Aaron's staff swallows up all of these other serpents. Well, what's happening in that narrative? Right? Why serpents? Why is, why is that a big deal? Well, the female serpent on the head of Pharaoh represented the divine powers that energized him. Right? That was the view. That was the Egyptian view. God or, or Pharaoh was was a god that was energized by uh, the power of the female serpent on his headdress, and so when God started to assault uh, Egypt, he started with an attack on the jugular. He went straight for the throat. You think the serpent is the source of your power, Pharaoh? Well, Yahweh controls the serpents and he will devour you. Right? That, that's a real world polemic. And every single successive plague ends up being a direct attack on one or more of the gods of Egypt. But ultimately, really what's happening in the, in the Exodus cycle is a conflict between Yahweh and Pharaoh because Pharaoh was meant to protect the Ma'at in Egypt, and by the end of the plagues, Egypt was in utter ruins, and Pharaoh was thoroughly crushed. That that was a real-world polemic, showing that Yahweh is the one true God, and if Pharaoh is going to try to maintain Ma'at on the backs and by the blood and the sweat and the tears and the lives of God's people— the pharaoh is going to have a very, very difficult time. That is part of the polemical point of the Exodus. Now, for these reasons and for many more, this is why I not only reject young earth creationism and old earth creationism as naturalistic or, or, uh, or, or other scientific understandings of Genesis 1 with their rigid literalism and their ad hoc hermeneutics, but I believe that literary framework with its polemical intent is a far better and clearer and more faithful handling of the text of scripture within its historical context and we see that those types of literary structures and that type of polemics happening throughout the Bible but heavily in the books of Moses. So that is a you know, kind of my shot across the bow uh, attempt to give a little bit more of a defense that I have given for literary framework. So thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to comment on the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freethinkerpodcast@gmail.com or stop by the Freethinker Group page on Facebook. And don't forget also to get your tickets to the Mentionables Conference this May in Greensboro, North Carolina. The links will be in the show notes. Finally, as an aside, I've been looking to have a young Earth creationist or an old Earth creationist come on the show to discuss the text of Genesis one. That is the text only. I don't want to go into all the scientific debates that defeats the purpose uh, of this entire series, but I want them to discuss the text of Genesis 1 with me, but I haven't really been able to work anything out. If you or someone you know would be interested in doing so, and you're relatively comfortable with the academic literature, please reach out to me and let me know. That is really the only addition to this series that I'm still planning on getting done at some point, so please let me know your recommendations in that direction. Well, join me again next time as we continue to try and help free thinkers to be freed and for the freed to think freely. Good night and God bless.